0: Yes, yeah, hello, folks. Welcome to the Global Football Show, the weekly Global Football Show. Uh, we're still getting the show sorted out and out the loose ends and everything else. Uh, but thank you so much for all of you who download and listen to the show and all that. Uh, of course, I'm joined here with my fantastic regular co host. You can find Zach at Zach Louis. Uh, Zach, of course, uh, runs the fantastic website Breaking the Lines. If you're a football geek and you're not checking this website out, you are seriously missing out. Um, Honestly, uh, some of the best forensic analysis on players I've seen uh, and not the typical players, Zach, not like your Messi's and Ronaldo's that everyone watches to death. I'm talking about all the players that you hear about that you don't know much about because you don't watch these other leagues. And I've learned so much from this website. So uh, if you get a chance, check my friend and colleague out here at Zach Roy and at BT Breaking Lines. You will find him and his fantastic content. Zach, first of all, mate, how are you doing this Monday morning?
1: Doing really well. Excited to be uh, recording the latest episode of the Global Football Show. And yeah, another thing I want to point out, we've, um, yes, we've done a lot of cool stuff on players, but uh, we recently published an article, uh, basically an expose on how the Qatar World Cup was bought. Um and and yeah, just talking about that corruption. So it's a really interesting piece uh, that's that's worth looking at.
0: We can talk about that actually. That'd be a really good topic to cover in today's show. We're talking about a number of different things. So we'll talk about, of course, Gas Bale's move, the LaFC, um, and I want to ask a question. The MLS sometimes gets unfairly criticised for sending players that are in uh, latter stages of their career. When you see teams like Barcelona willing to spend thirty million plus on Lewandowski and. You know, you see Ibrahimovic at Milan, you see lots of older players now that uh, still retain their value. And I think that's got something to do with, of course, how players look after themselves today. So we'll get into that. We're also going to talk about how football is changing. One of the things that uh, sort of snuck under the radar about a week or so ago was football trying these uh, Mm kick-ins to replace the throw-ins. Now... I'm not a Luddite. I'm not completely against technological development. I'm not against the game evolving. Um, I, I don't want to be someone that's rigidly stuck in the past that says you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, one of the biggest changes, Zach, we've seen in recent years, of course, is heading at uh, youth football. And I heard a lot from purists saying, this is ridiculous, this is not, you know, players should be able to head the ball, blah, blah, blah. But I think one of the maybe unintended consequences, one of the dividends of that is that young players will learn how to play much more with their feet and keep the ball on the ground. Um, and you think about how many times you've had a ball in a game, maybe two or three, you know, depending. And it's becoming even less with the ball played more and more on the ground. And that's saying it's not a skill that you don't need. But mm-hmm. I think that some of the historical reaction to it was... Um, Bit ridiculous, and of course, we'll also talk about some of the things that are going on off the field that will change high review football in the future. I mean, it's hard to believe just how much it's changed in 15 years. So, uh, the law of accelerated returns means that that will uh, become even greater and greater. So, um, Zach, first place we'll start, mate, is uh, of course the Lewandowski type transfer, right? Because I want to get into this because Gareth Bale, as we know. It's just signed for LAFC. Mm-hmm. To me, Gareth Beale is still a top footballer. If he'd have come to my club, Manchester United, I would have been happy. I still think he's got a lot to offer. I think the MLS are unfairly not sometimes for signing elder players. But anyone who has been paying close attention to the MLS will know that they've also invested heavily in youth from South America and other parts of the world, which they should be doing. And uh, clubs like Atlanta and other clubs in the MLS... Uh attract enormous amount of European scouts to sign their players. Um, you know, if you look at New York, New York City FC, of course, they're back with Manchester City, they've got Talismano and stuff down there, they've got some fantastic young players, Zico Baco with Atlanta. Um, and uh I think it's on criticism. Tell me what you made of this Gareth bale transfer.
1: Listen, I mean, I think that uh Yes, people are still going to call MLS a retirement league, you know, and that's, that's not going to change. But look, if you actually look at the stats, if you actually look at the facts, the fact is they are more, more and more MLS teams are spending, uh, you know, plenty of money on, on one, building up their academies. And that's why we're seeing plenty more homegrown talents coming through these academies, eventually getting big moves. Uh, to european teams so that's something that you have to take into account another thing as well um the mls is actually becoming one of the top destinations for south american youngsters who want to take that next step in their career before going to europe almost like becoming a bridge in many ways so you know that's something that you look at all these players uh you know and and I think that that's that's definitely something, whether it's Alan Velasco going to Dallas, Mm -hmm. uh, Diego Rossi going to LAFC. You know, that is something that I think has reaped benefits because more and more MLS teams are going to be able to get a decent profit and develop these players. But I think you also have to have a balance. And so, uh, and I think that a part of balance is getting these big name stars to draw in crowds, but also to help you win games. Gareth Bale, um, you know, I, I... for me, if I was in charge of top club, I would not be signing him because he is still, you know, he he is uh, a declining player. His, physical, his availability has become quite unreliable. I think it's clear that his body has given up on him in some ways. But with that being said, when he's fit, he's capable of winning games all by himself. We've seen that not just with Wales, but uh, in some cases, uh, Tottenham last season. So look, I think that Gareth Bale still has what it takes to be a very good player, and I, I think that this is an interesting move for him. I would have liked to see him return to uh, to to uh, England, and you know, pretend. I know there were some rumors of Cardiff and some smaller moves like Hitafe. but I think this this at the end of the day, this actually makes a decent amount of sense. Uh, you know, he is joining a a club where he'll expected to be will be expected to be one of the main names on the team sheet. You know, he'll be uh, playing regularly ahead of the World Cup and, yeah, get get the chance to uh, to live in Los Angeles with you. So that's all. <laughs> the, uh, the yes. Um, Although well, it'll probably take four hours for you to see him, knowing how this uh, traffic is.
0: You know what? He's putting his hands, packing my beer, that's okay. We'll, we'll, I'll put up the four hours. Um, but let's look at this from another couple of perspectives, right? Because... This sort of reminds me a bit of when Giovinco went to Toronto. Giovinco was still in his prime as a footballer, and lots of people questioned whether that was the right move. Giovinco still got in the Italian national team; he was exceptional for a Toronto, uh, brilliant, brilliant football player. Garfield's obviously still an integral player for Wheels, and I think that this might actually help him a bit in the sense that if you're going to go to the Premier League, it's probably in terms of intensity and pace. Uh, uh, the quickest and most intense league in, in, in Europe, I would say, right? I and mean, Spanish league has different, and Italian league has different qualities that would set it apart from the English Premier League. But I think if you ask most people who have played in those leagues, they'll tell you the pace is un- unbelievable. I remember John W. Mikel saying this about uh, Lukaku. And a couple of weeks ago, saying, you know, there's pace and intensity in the Premier League. And that's not always a good thing, because sometimes skill is sacrificed, and other things are sacrificed when you have a high intensity game like that. But um, if you're going to pay a lot of money for Gareth Bale, you need to make sure he's fit a lot. And I just wonder with the intensity every week of the Premier League and having to pay a guy, you know, an exorbitant amount of money, which I'm sure Gareth would have been would have been on. You looked at his loan spell at Spurs, Zach you know, a year, two years ago. And admittedly, that season was interrupted with COVID and everything, so um, it's not always the best benchmark, but he anyway, wasn't great. Um, I still think, like, you as a player in there, um, and I think that maybe the one thing that I would concern me about the MLS, um, and I hear this a lot from players that come from Europe, is the travelling, right? I mean, you know, you can be one side of Europe, you know, in the other in a few hours, and um, certainly uh, if you're, if you're excluding Russia, uh, but in the U S in the traveling is absolutely unbelievable.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. That, that's definitely one thing. I think a lot of people don't take into account, you know, going from Los Angeles to New York, going to Houston, going to Minnesota, all these, these, these are going to, you know, definitely take a toll on you physically. Um, and, and yeah, I think that's definitely an interesting aspect for sure. But with that being said, um, I think that it's still for for me. I think that it's still a decent choice. I don't think that if you're Bale, I don't I don't know if going back to the Premier League at this stage of your career is the right decision. First of all, you've already proven all that you need to prove um, in in England and and Europe. You know, he's won everything there is to win. That doesn't necessarily mean. Uh, cash out but but I think it means you know one protect your body go to a less intense league that's going to be maybe not as physically demanding and and yeah I think that this this move will make a lot of sense for him obviously linking up with uh, Giorgio Chiellini Chiellini, um, and Carlos Vela LAFC um, and Los Angeles great city for sure so uh, it's it's definitely an interesting move and yeah, I mean, you do have there. There is, I think, as well, you know, that that chance to to create a legacy. Um, I know that I think he joined on what an eighteen-month deal, so not too much. But you know, L.A.F.C. they've brought in some uh, some very good players, mm-hmm. and, and have done fairly well since uh, starting up in in 2018. But you know, have still been been unable uh, to to. To crown themselves as MLS Cup champions and have kind of fallen off um, in recent years. So this is a very interesting move for sure. And I think that, uh, yeah, I think that it's, it's another reason why uh, MLS is becoming more and more of an emerging power on the world stage. Because yes, you have these younger players who are making their way from the academy. Yes, you have... Um, these, you know, South American kids like Diego Rossi uh, and, you know, Alan Velasco, all these uh, promising young players who are making their way up. But you also have these big name stars who, who find the league an attractive proposition. And I think that's what it is. It's about balance. And so MLS teams, you know, they can't be worried about, Oh, you know, is this person going to call us the retirement league or whatever. Fact is, you need to find a balance if you're a team and you're a league. And I think that this is this is going to help their balance for sure. Yeah,
0: Luke, first of all, you know, there has to be some perspective. This is a football club founded in 2014, didn't start playing until 2018. You know, it's, yeah, it's a brand new football club. It's exceptionally well-backed uh, financially. Some of the people involved in that match, Johnson, Will Ferrell, Mia Hammers, a lot of money involved in that football club. Um, and this place, Los Angeles, is big enough. It's a massive place. It's it's hard to describe how big this place is. People have never been here. And uh, so a city like LA needs a domestic rivalry. And I think LAFC will provide that um, along with the Galaxy. The Galaxy are probably, I would say, the most famous club in America, outside of America. I think, uh, obviously, New York because of their, their location. But I think the LA Galaxy still have that glamour. I suppose, you know, that probably a hangover from the back of the era, what have you, and of course, the reputation of the city. Um, <clears throat> so I think if you're Gareth Bale, and this is where I think, uh, and we'll talk about how football is going to evolve, where the US is still a very attractive place for people to want to come and live. Um, still has a very high standard of living. And once MLS clubs get to a point where they can compete, not just in terms of finance, but in terms of prestige with world football, the players are going to start coming here. Which brings me to my next point, Zach. We're looking at the changing face of football. Football is rapidly changing uh, before our eyes. And yes, we know some of the the off-the-field things happen, the administrative changes, the structure of competition changes, and everything else. We'll get to that in a minute. But first of all, like I said, one of the things that sort of flew under the radar last week was this kick-in. Right. And I'm not completely opposed to it. I'm not someone that would say, Do you know what? This is ridiculous. You know, you're, you're, you're diluting football to some of the sport. No. And I think it's OK. I think that like the back pass room definitely a positive positive. no question about it. And I remember purists back then saying, this is ridiculous. This is going to hurt the game. You know, This is all about trying to make the game more amenable to Americans to really get more goals on it. No question about taking the back pass routine has helped football. VAR, you can argue that both ways. I would say with VAR, over the course of time, mm-hmm. it'll probably prove to, prove to be a positive, depending on what you want. One thing that would slightly concern me about VAR is breaking the game down into bits. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think you do lose something there about the uh, spontaneity of you know goals and the, the things that happen in sport. Um, you know now we're sitting there going, can we celebrate this goal or can we not? You know, I do think there's something to be fixed there, but I wouldn't throw it all out completely. But let me ask you about, first of all, kick-ins. Uh, as we alluded to earlier, you know, heading has been taken out for young kids. I agree with that. What do you think of this idea?
1: One thing, um, one thing that a lot of people don't know is actually kick-ins, they were used fairly early on uh, in football. Really? I didn't know that. It was until actually 1863 that the football association removed them and, you know, went with throw-ins. So they had- I didn't know that, that's interesting. But um, but yeah, look for for uh, for youth teams. I think it makes sense, and I think that um, one thing you know, I, I'm not 100% clued up on the youth coaching scene, but I'm seeing a, a lot more like changes coming across national associations. Yeah. and and some of that is like kick-ins. Some of that as well, like having having you know less intense tactic to tactical focused coaching just letting kids play more i, I think for I mean that is something that that yeah should be encouraged i think that look we need to to ensure that these kids are not becoming robots you know mm-hmm. that they can enjoy football yes. that they can showcase their skills um, and yeah i do think that one part of that is just one you know not bogging them down with all these, um, you know, tactical lessons and stuff and, and whatnot. So, and I guess that, yeah, I think that as well on, on the, on the other side, I think that kick-ins would probably help uh, reduce concussions in, uh, in, in, in youth, in, in youth footballers. So, yeah, that does make sense. I'm not too sure if I'd want it, um, if I would want it applied in uh, in the senior level, though, because I do think that uh, look does do aerial.
0: Rory Delap approves that message.
1: <laughs> <laughs> look, I mean, look. The fact is, I mean, yes, I don't. I think that throw-ins are probably one of the ugliest parts of football, but they are still a part of football, um, and so are aerial duels. You know, you've got to learn how to head the ball. Whether it's winning an aerial duel or scoring or heading it out of your own box, um, so I, I don't agree with taking away that kind of stuff. You know, I think that okay, fine if you want to limit that to youth football. If if you want to take take that away, fair enough. But you one, you need to make sure that these kids learn it at some point how to hit a ball so that they're not hurting themselves, and two, you need to make sure that um, that yeah, you you don't I think give in to to people who were saying you know let's take this way to make it safer look safety is definitely important yeah. but football is one, one of the reasons why it is the world's number one sport is because of that physicality okay yes maybe not to the same degree as nfl or rugby but that physicality is part of what makes it you know the world's number one game so i i i'm not opposed necessarily to doing that to you know extending kick-ins to i think like u12 u13 level fair enough but uh i think that you know having throw-ins as well as have uh, allowing these players to engage in physical duels that's part of what makes football so great
0: yeah so there's two points there i i understand the, you know, the aerial not and, and I do think there's, yep. there's certainly value in that. It. When it comes to the throwing, so I'm sort of on the fence with this, right? <clears throat> um, there's pros and cons. So when you coach kids, uh, one of the most common uh, errors is kids not knowing how to throw a ball in properly. Right? They either lift their feet off the ground, they don't put the ball behind their head, probably all this, right? And a lot of that could be solved by kick-ins. And I think one of my concerns doesn't exist at this level. So when you're playing with young kids, and when we look at futsal and other games where you know it, where you do have kick-ins and stuff, um, You know, it's a highly skilled game. And so uh, when you are dealing with young kids, you go on how much time do I really want to spend teaching all of these kids how to throw a ball in, when there's so many other vital skills that they lack. And so it's not a hard skill to perfect. I agree. But it's not just the throw-in. Then you know it's about teaching kids high defense space to receive a throw-in and everything else, right? Um and so I agree to assert to that perhaps in youth football it makes sense to not do it uh to or to, to have kick-ins. Where it would concern me on the professional level mm-hmm. is All of a sudden, a throw-in becomes a free kick. And so people will start playing for that. You know, here's a throw-in five yards from our own box. And basically, everyone goes forward, the entire team, because now you've got the center back It's going to launch at 60, 70 yards. So I also feel kick-ins will probably take a little bit longer than throw-ins. You know, you know we have we, we allow people to steal yards and what have you but when they're reintroducing the ball in the play they're not dramatically like if you get a throw in at the edge of your own box or the opposition does it takes a lot of work to get out of there but all of a sudden you start getting thrown in the edge of your own box you're getting out right away because someone's just going to knock the ball 60 the yards and i don't think that's I don't think that's right. I think um you know, you're reintroducing the ball back in the play. You shouldn't have the advantage of being able to knock at 60, 70 yards from. A th- and I, so, I think there's pros and cons. I think the cons for me, I still would stick with throw-ins at the highest level because, or anywhere beyond the age of fourteen, I would say, uh, because uh, the physical advantage is there. You know, it would be enormous, and uh, I think. With throw-ins, um, I still think it's the best way to introduce the ball back into play. When, some, when a ball rolls out, you know you, you should it, it should not be getting an advantage. You know what happens if you get a, a throw-in? You know, for thirty-five yards from goal, it's essentially a free kick. And to me, I don't think that should be happening. Um, so you know, throw-ins are. Someone say someone's run down the line with the ball, makes a slight mistake, ball goes out. The potential for punishment there uh, is, is huge. Now, if you've got a player with a ball and you cut him in two and he gets a free kick, well, they deserve to have that advantage. But with a throw in, I'm not so sure. You know? And I know it works both ways and everything, but I do see that as a potential negative. I also think what it would do, so when you see the likes of Rory the lap and everything, they throw these long balls into the box. I think the game would suffer technically a bit. Because you're gonna have that a lot. You're gonna have people launching the ball in the box a lot, whereas the throw-in to get up to the opposition's box requires a lot more skill. And so I just think, you know, I would probably not. There's the then comes the other questions that that was a couple of weeks prior to that. Um, this no more a revolving clock, right? So clock stops. So essentially an American, like a basketball type clock, you know, you have a, you know, the the clock doesn't tick when the ball's are play. It's all in play. And it's a 16 minute game, not an 18 minute game. What do you think of that?
1: Yeah, this is uh, a, this is a really interesting one, I think. And I think there's definitely a case here that, that I wouldn't, I, I'm a big believer of, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But I do think that, you know, as opposed to throw-ins, I think that uh, stop clocks, for me, this is something that that could actually work. Because, look, I think that, um, you know, in so many games, even top-level games, there is just so much time-wasting. Yeah. And so much, and it, and it just makes the game worse. Um, you know, I, I I think that it's... It, there needs to be something, there needs to be at least a start to, to improving this. Um, so one thing, one thing I will say as well, we recently published an article on the, this. Is it time for the introduction of stop clocks in football? Recently published it on hmm. uh, Breaking Lines. So um, interestingly enough, uh, the average amount of effective playing time for the Europe's top five leagues 53 minutes in La Liga, 55 in the Premier League, 55 in Serie A, mm. 56 in Ligue 1, and 57 in Bundesliga. So a minimum of uh, like 33 minutes, uh, 30, about 35 minutes of non-effective playing time, right, where the ball is just out. And and I think that, I mean, I, mean it's, I'm, I'm, I don't have the facts on this, but I'm 100% sure of that. Uh, the effective playing time in the Primera Liga, uh, in the Portuguese league, is, is a lot worse than that. That's something that I think it has really turned off a lot of people from, from a lot yeah. of these leagues, because, frankly, it's ugly to see teams t- time-wasting, you know, a goalkeeper just, uh, w- like, waiting 10 seconds before uh, kicking a, uh, you know, a long goal kick, uh, and and all of these players just trying to do whatever they can to get away with and and it works for them and because uh, because you know a lot of the times the referee will not give them a yellow card for time wasting so I think that one of the ways to counteract that and and in many ways help the players because they're not going to get a a yellow card for time wasting if, if this happens is just is by introducing stop clocks and having let's say an effective playing time of, I don't know, 60 minutes. You have to play for 60 minutes of effective playing time and not 90 minutes. I think that's something that is worth looking at. Okay. Yes. uh, 90 minutes, 90 minute games are obviously a big part of football, but I honestly don't think you can make the argument and say that, Oh, you know, having 20, 30 minutes of non-effective playing time, right. Where, uh, you know, the, this player is taking forever to take a throw in, or you know, doing all this stuff to waste time. I don't think that you can necessarily say that that uh, benefits the game. I think that football's authorities need to be looking at things that will raise the quality and bring in more viewers. You know, you can't just like um, sit on a sit on like a glass house, you know, and and think that just because football has been uh, the world's number one sport for you know for for a century now that it's it's always going to be that way. You can't be that uh, cocky and self assured. You always have I to agree. be looking at the threats of other sports such as basketball, such as cricket. You know all these other sports that could overtake them, and look at what can we do to draw more people into and to make it better. And look, I think that and I, and I also think that one of the things that has made football, the number one sport in a, in the world is that it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're in a desert in Africa or a, you know, rainforest in South America or wherever, if you have a ball and like two things that, that can represent a goal, you can play it. Okay. So, and, and these kids play the same way that they see their idols do, but I don't think that they're going to be, you know, taking five 10 seconds to take a throw in or do all this shameless time wasting, you know, they, they're going to play for the love of the game. So frankly, I don't think that making football, uh, based on making football, a football game be based on effective playing time rather than, you know, 90 minutes. Um, for me, that would not take away from the, the, what, what makes football so great.
0: Yeah, there's also the other side of this in the sense that you have to be very careful. You don't tinker too much. And, you know, w- if you go back to the Super League, um, one of the things Florentino Perez said, and he'd be better placed than me to answer this, uh, is that young kids aren't watching 90 minutes of football anymore. They don't want to watch 90 minutes of football anymore. Um, and, you know, we talk, we talk about, you know, diminishing attention span and the constant news cycle and you know, one of the things that has changed immensely <clears throat> is the usage of social media while games are being played. So people are toggling between the game and giving their emotions are giving their views on the game. And I've even looked at myself, Zach, I've looked at um, tweets that I've made whilst watching a game. And they're not my best moments. Uh, they're hysterical because they're 100% emotional. You look back on and which I didn't have access to. And I've actually tried to do better about that. But there's no question how people consume the game is changing. And whether they're paying attention to every minute of the game, I would debate. So, and we also have this new phenomenon of watch parties, which is a bit strange to me. But you get people watching, other people watching a game to see what their reactions are. So. When I was growing up, none of this stuff was even imaginable. And you watched football. When I was watching football, I didn't take my eyes off it. I consumed everything as on front. And that's, that's a good thing. I'm just saying this is how things have changed. So there's no question about it that how people consume football today is kind of is changed, uh, unrecognizable from what it once was. And, of course, we have this Florentino-Paris comment. I don't agree with that. Um, you know, if you take a look at the Celtics-Warriors, you know, um, my kid, 15 years old, was glued to it, start to finish. I know it's anecdotal, but <clears throat> nonetheless, I, I would be surprised if that's the case. So there's how we consume the the, the, the football content has completely changed in our relationship to that, has completely changed. So do you think that um, that is also playing a role where footballs looking at this and going, look, uh, the way young people consume our content, it's much more highlights driven, right? You see a lot more of condensed content, bite-sized contents to borrow corporate products, which I hate. Um, do you think that uh, that may be also a factor in this?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think so. I think that as you mentioned um people are a lot more inclined to just like to to tweet during games and i i, I am part of that okay i have i i uh definitely have this mistake too of, of you know tweeting during games and i think that part of it is like you want to be the first person to, get yeah, to tweet out highlight or you want to be the first person to say like what was that pass like yeah, what you yeah. and you want to get those retweets too but yes. at the end of the day, one, um, and like I said, I'm I'm trying to work on this myself. But one takes away from your viewing experience because a lot of times, even if you're even if you're not tweeting, even if like you'll be scrolling through Twitter mm-hmm. while the game is going on, and that's taking away from like you know you appreciating what's happening in the game. And two, um, a lot of times you're gonna be posting low quality tweets, you know, because you're like. Your, half of your mind is focused on the game. Half your mind's focused on Twitter. And at the end of the day, you'll, you'll end up tweeting out some reactionary stuff. So honestly, I mean, that is like, that is one thing that I am trying to set uh, set as a goal for myself is like not, try not to be on uh, Twitter and watching a game at the same time because it's so easy to get uh, sucked into that and and to sort of... I think to care more about what pe- other people across the world are saying about the game than, like, what's happening in the actual game. You know, the, you'll be watching the game and saying, oh, well, it looks like Paulinha is having a good game for sports. Wait, are other people saying he's, you know, having a good game? I was just like, going
0: to say this. As soon as he broke, I was going to bring his point <laughs> up, and I'm going to own myself on it. Right. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Let you finish, man.
1: No, just, like, like you... Like okay, so I've watched this game with my two eyes, and like mm-hmm. I think he's having a good game. But let me just go on, like yeah. the we mm-hmm. go on the the t- timeline and see are other people saying because like if they're not, then maybe I should like you know stop saying it. You know, yeah, so it's something it so that much. I think. Look, Twitter is a great uh, platform, you know, for a lot of different things, but at the same time, it's. um I think that if you use it too much, it, it can be toxic, you know, and it can, it can worsen your mental experience. Your mental oh, it's not that. It, you definitely have that balance. And it, yeah, you're if, so you're, if you're a football fanatic, I think that's one thing, look, I'm not going to tell people how to live their life, but for me personally, that's something that I'm really trying to work on is, is just like not being on social media while watching the game and just trying to focus and get the full concept, you know what I mean?
0: Well, you know something that's really, really interesting because I swear to God, I had written this down on my notepad to talk about this because um, I've, and this is uh, this leads to bigger questions about how social media shapes your views in general, not just with football, but with everything. And so, and and influencers and how they shape reviews. The views. And <clears throat> one of the drawbacks, I suppose, of having a decent following count is the pendulum swings both ways. You know, if you say something that's popular, you get a lot of love. But if you don't, you get a lot of hate, a lot of anger, a lot of uh, nasty tweets, and what have you. And so <clears throat> I've caught myself in the past sitting there watching the game. "Look, well, Shaw's playing really, really well here. Really And then I'm reading social media a bunch of tweets about how crappy is and how badly he's playing. Yeah. And... Everyone wants to ride the populism wave. That's just human nature. As human psychology and social media is designed for virality, it's designed to hijack the pleasure centers in your brain, right? And everyone wants to be told what a great guy they are and how knowledgeable they are and all that. That's, I'm not divorced from that. I'm not better than anyone else. I'm completely vulnerable to that as well. And I have definitely, definitely changed my view on what I'm watching. based on reading the room, right? Where I'm like, maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe he's not. And then you'll see a bunch of people agreeing with, you know, with Luke Shaw didn't play well. Yeah. And you'll find yourself wanting to be in the end group and writing something that's commensurate with that, that gets you, but it's not really how you think. And then I sat and I thought about this, not just with football, but in life in general, in politics in everything, and how powerful wanting to be popular. Because I was thinking about this you know, we've always said money is the root of all evil. But I honestly think caring about what other people think is a big part of it, because that determines what clothes we buy, what job we have. It determines our relationships. I mean, we've all... The other guys find my girlfriend attractive. If they all think she's ugly, I don't want to be with her. Right? But if they think she's too hot, I don't want to be with her. Right? Uh, you know, what, what about my job? Do they think I'm great? No. Okay. And this is insane because we're constantly living our lives as this advertisement, you know, for happiness and contentment in contrast to someone else. You know, and the reality for all of us is... Um, you know, the pleasure and happiness are two very different things. And most people are chasing pleasure and don't realize that it's not happiness. They're very different things. I'm getting on a bit of a tangent here, but you're right. Um, it's really interesting how powerful social media is. in shaping our own views. And then what will happen, Zach, is 10 minutes later, I will believe into my soul that Luke Shaw is playing bar, even <laughs> though that's not what I thought 10 minutes ago. Right. And it's like, you know, you tweet something that people disagree with. None of us we end up having to mute the tweet because you are not to read the mentions because it's just so negative, right? And and no one likes how that makes it makes you feel. So it is interesting to see how that shapes our views. Also, what's interesting <clears throat> in the human experiment of social media is so social media has basically it's connected the entire world. And you've got an amalgamation of different cultures different views different lenses and inevitably that's going to bring conflict because people are being brought together uh you have different cultural social norms and different views and different everything and so inevitably and i say this to anyone who's getting the, you know criticism or abuse on social media you have to realize this is part of it this is part of the game right you, the, whatever you say if you say hello you're going to have 10% of the population that's going to call you a douche, and that's just life, right? And yeah. you can't take it too personal. I mean, I, I, I'm i doing this now, I don't know, for 12, 13, 14 years. And I, I even look at some of my early, some of my tweets when I first started doing this and how much I've changed as a person and how much the things that, you know, once perturbed me 10 years ago don't today. And so the other thing is is that, um, you know, when I look at, how I've changed and, and look at how social media has changed me uh, and how we that, that makes me wonder when I extrapolate what the next 10-15 years are going to look like uh, and how we consume sport and I think they're going to be inseparable from social media and, um, and the other thing is like this also heavily influences how clubs behave right because they're trying to write that populist wave too but they're in the entertainment business. So um, it's really incredible, this human experiment that has brought all of us together with such broad, diverse views, a lot of positives, some negatives, too. And, um, and trying to thread that needle of saying something that's not going to provoke abuse but that's just part of it man Like i said, i haven't done this a long time and the time that i've been doing this i've been fortunate enough to build relationships with some key people in football. um for, uh, they're my best friend i don't think they're i don't think i'm theirs though but <laughs> uh but they of course provide you with information most of which i can never talk about right and i still get people today calling me a fraud or a pedophile or whatever because they you say something they don't like it's just insane I, and uh, I don't know. Uh, but that's the world that we live in. So I would say to anyone chasing big follower count, it's not what you think. So um, sometimes it'd be nice to go back to a, a burner account that has 10, 15 followers and say what I actually want to say, <laughs> not what I think I should say. Um, yeah, some interesting, some interesting stuff were made about what we think will change over the, the coming years. And some of the things that I want to touch on in future shows uh, is, of course, how do we get competitive balance back in football? Because, obviously, UEFA is trying to address this with the new FFP. We'll cover that a little bit more depth probably next week, folks. Um, I want to also, Zach and I will also have a conversation about how does football deal with political issues, such as taking the knee, such as all these other things that you know the poppies that are on shirts that are controversial, should sport be even touching it, should it not? Um you know, uh, obviously in this country, Zach, you know, politics and sport are inseparable. I mean it, it it is quite incredible if you're from Europe to come over here and to see I I come over here in '11 that just happened, but it was jarring to me, it was shocking to me. To see how integrated they were, and 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 uh, you know, see the military on the field here, and, and these are things you never would have saw in the Premier League. Now you're starting to see that because they, uh, you know, the Premier League copies the NFL and absolutely everything that they do. So, uh, but that's a topic that requires a little bit more nuance and research, and we need to do that justice. So I'm not going to touch on it today. Um, and uh, don't forget, folks, get your questions into us for future shows. You can tweet myself at Malakans or at Zach hilly uh, or at Beyond the Pitch. Uh, Zach is also an admin on Beyond the Pitch, so uh, he will he keep popspeed on the Twitter account as well. So, he, he, so you'll get an answer from one of us. We want to start integrating that into the shows uh, going forward. Um, <clears throat> Zach, a couple of things before we go. and talk about... Um, yeah. Raheem Sterling. So it looks like Raheem Sterling could be going to Chelsea and knocked down too. Um, I have to be honest. I think Raheem Sterling is a thirty-five million-pound footballer, even if he's got four years left on his contract. Because I think that he failed. And the, the, the when we look at footballers, the last part of their development is the hardest, right? Because so few people can make that jump from a good player into a great player, or a great player into a world class player. It, it's so hard to do. And so many people fail at that last jump, right? And we see so many young players with enormous potential that don't quite make that. Raheem starting when he was at Liverpool at 17 was incredible, right? I would argue that Raheem starting at 17, he's 27 right now, hasn't developed that much because he. I honestly think he frustrated Pep Guardiola Manchester City with the amount of chances that he misses in games, which you just can't do at this level and still win European Cups. Those small margins cost City against Real Madrid. Um, I don't really understand why Chelsea would be in for him, given that uh, Todd Body will be given, um, took a lot of money. What do you think, him starting?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, look... It's, it's I think that the biggest reason why Sterling uh, has not perhaps reached the heights as as he perhaps was was tipped when he joined Manchester City and uh, for let me pre- preface this by saying I think that Sterling has been a great has been a great signing for them I think that he's been a very important part yeah. in their dominance and you know proven that he can be a consistent goal scorer and. Uh, But, but yeah, you are right that I think his finishing woes have been perhaps the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, You know, I I would, I would, I would also say that um, against Real Madrid, I think that City's two best chances in the latter ends, both of them came from Grealish. Um, And Grealish, you know, he did well to help create them, but he should have put them away. Uh, so I think that Grealish, Mares, you know, Foden, all these players—they've—they've they've done fairly well, but they are still lacking, I think, in terms of the final third. Um, and look, I think that Sterling—that's—that's that's, at the end of the day, that's what he needs to do uh, to to become a success at Chelsea. And he's 27 years old. Um, he has, I despite his finishing woes, he still has a good uh, goal scoring record in the Premier League. But two years where I think he's definitely taken a decline in production. And it seems like, you know, he's, he's basically done everything that there is to do at City, um, apart from win the Champions League, obviously. And he, it seems like he needs a new challenge in his career. So that's where I think that Chelsea could definitely make some sense. I think that, you know, despite the fact that he has, he definitely isn't uh, trending upwards right now. I think that he's more of a proven threat as a goal scorer than than a lot of others. A lot of, um, yeah, a lot of uh, Chelsea's other uh, wide players, you know. And I also think that he's a player who knows how to get in behind defenses and make a run. For me, that's something that Chelsea uh, are missing. Um, They 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 don't have those real players who can exploit that space in behind. So I definitely think that's that's an area where I'm optimistic.
0: Okay, so order. That, that, that that's yeah. a big departure from you know it, 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 when Solskjaer took over Manchester United, the first yeah. player that became obvious to me that was going to be cut was Romelu Lukaku, because right. he had wanted that City-esque interchangeable front three, where you didn't really have a target mind. You had players that played in the channels, and they you could able you were able to switch them around. So what you're talking about here that Raheem Sterling brings to the team. Is a team formation and lineup that's not compatible with Romelu Lukaku. Now, I know we all know Lukaku's leaving. But why did Chelsea spend 19 million on a, on a guy that's not suited to Thomas Tuchel's um, way of playing?
1: You don't think. I Look, I think that Lukaku, I, I think that. Yeah, it's spectacular failure for sure. But I, I don't know if I'd say that Sterling and Tuchel system is a square fit. Is a square No no,
0: I would say Sterling fits, but I, I I'm yeah. that's sterling in question. I'm trying to question why they bought Lukaku because Lukaku um, yeah. Lukaku doesn't fit that type of system.
1: It's it was yeah, exactly. And that's that's one thing that I think yeah, look, I was sold on the hype. I thought that this would be a good signing. I thought that, you know, Lukaku, after tearing it up at Inter, uh, was going to carry over this form at Chelsea. I thought, it, you know, I kind of uh, got too bogged down by the emotions. And I think that a lot of people at Chelsea did. So I think that they did not do their homework, right, and did not really visualize how he would fit in. And, you know, I think that when it comes to strikers uh, – and and analyzing how they're fit. One of the things that you need to do is is not look at how many goals they score, they score, but look at the goals that they score. You know, are they coming off the last shoulder of the defense? Are they, you know, breaking on the counter? Are they, uh, you know, playing right next to another striker and making run? You know, stuff like this where I think that Chelsea just did not do their homework, and and they didn't find a way to accommodate Lukaku. So, look, I think that it's it's both of theirs' fault, okay? I think that, yes, um, Lukaku did, was absolutely w- one of the worst signings in football history for Chelsea. But with that being said, um, I also think that, for me, I would have liked to see Tuchel tweak the system a little bit to get more out of Lukaku. Because I do think that he is uh, still a good striker. I think that, you know, yeah, I mean, he's you trust Lukaku to come up with a goal more than you trust Chelsea's others. I think that Chelsea's other attackers in many ways, you know, the jury is still out on a lot of them, whether it's Pulisic, Yek, Werner, Havertz. Uh, so, so yeah. And that's one thing where I think that Sterling gets uh, my benefit of the doubt because yes, despite his finishing lows, and despite it seeming like he's a player who has, who has reached his ceiling Fact is, if you can be that consistent goal scorer and uh, even a goal provider, I think you can definitely uh, have a success and extend your career. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens with this move. Um, I do feel like Chelsea may need more of a creator profile in there. You know, I think that okay, we've got you've got Sterling, you know, you've got uh, Sterling on one flank, probably Kai Havertz as the center forward maybe put Mason Mountain midfield and then having, like, I think more of a uh, a creative winger, whether that's Rafinha or, or Usmail Dembele. I think you need that profile, especially with Hakim Ziyech seeming like he's on his way out uh, to, yeah, in many ways, open up the defense.
0: Which then brings me back to a question that we've touched on before about the number nine position, because... Them, still, the most important player in football and the most expensive player in football is a goal scorer because there's no goal score, it's still the hardest thing to do in the game. Um, score goals. Some people might disagree, but I would say it is. Uh, so when I look at the top teams in Europe, Real Madrid, Benzema, right? Uh, there's no way Real Madrid win anything without Benzema, right? Uh, Chelsea, of course, as you know, Chelsea and Kaki, and then like Holland, which is in the Almost, he's a target man type striker, right? Not nimble in terms of like Gabby Jesus or someone like that, right? Um, Different type of player. Uh, Barcelona want to spend a lot of money on Lewandowski. Uh, You know, Liverpool just spent 80 million on Darwin Nunez. But yet, if you talk to people at youth level in football, they'll tell you that academies aren't really producing number nines anymore because such is the trend of the sport, that they're trending towards those more interchangeable strikers rather than a single target man. I mean, I remember, Zach, when Michael Owen signed for Real Madrid and he had a really good season. Of course, Real Madrid got rid of him. And I remember Valentina Perez saying um, "At Real Madrid, you have to do more than just score goals. Right. Mm-hmm. So are we looking at teams that saying, look, we need more from a striker than just scores goals. You heard Ranyak say about Ronaldo, he scores goals, but he's not a pressing monster. And are we asking strikers to do things that we shouldn't be asking them to do that shouldn't be part of their evaluation? If a guy gets you 30 goals a year, should you be worried about he can't press? I know where your answer is gonna be. But right? um, because but the thing is is that uh what I worry. That Holland can't press if he's getting thirty goals. No, what I worry that Lewandowski can't press if he's getting thirty plus goals. No, Seymour Benzema. No, um, I also recognise that it's the first line of defence. Um, but maybe we can't have both. Maybe we can't have a goal poacher, uh, old fashioned number nine that's going to run around and press defenders because they're naturally going to get dragged out of position. So, um, is it possible to have both?
1: Look, I think that every every action has, has an impact, you know, and I think that football's uh, transition to, yeah, more, I wouldn't say a transition to false nines because I do think that center forwards, that we are still seeing, I think more, m- more and more, uh, you know, of, of a similar profile of center forwards, whether that's Dusan Vlahovic, Darwin Nunez, Victor Osimen. I'm not going to say old fashioned, but, you know, I think a traditional nine profile. Um, But yeah, with that being said, I think that the more, yes, obviously the more time you spend focusing on uh, other attributes, yeah, the less they're going to be focused on, you know, uh, on, on just natural goal scoring attributes. So that's, that's, that's something that's just, you know, an an end result of football's um, shift. But at the end of the day, look, I think that what this is going to do is just force more and more center forwards to just try to add more levels to their games. And, and I think that uh, you can't be, it's very hard to be a center forward who lacks um, you know, that ability to, to, to uh, link up with attacking teammates, to hold up the ball. And I, I think that, Yes, in many ways, these uh, old-fashioned set of who can't act as an outlet in possession, they are becoming more and more redundant. Um, so, so I remember the case of Rafinha and Mauro Icardi. Uh, they were both at Barcelona's La Masia Academy um, and ironically would end up playing together for both Inter and Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, but, but Rafinha, well, Icardi was playing for them and uh, he ended up being pushed out of the team by Rafinha, who was acting more as a false nine. Uh, and that's what caused Icardi to end up going to Sampdoria. But, you know, so, so I think that a few years ago, people, you know, were laughing at Barcelona, like, oh, how can you look, at, how can you, you know, let such a rare talent like Icardi leave? But now you look at Mauro Icardi's career. And I think that you could argue it, it hasn't panned out, uh, as it should have, and I think one of the biggest reasons the fact that look this guy is, um, y- yeah, I mean this guy is a striker of yesteryear. He doesn't have that much ability on the ball. He's not that quick, you know. He just has that ability to to find that pocket of space, and and yeah, he doesn't need many touches to score goals. So give him that. But players like Akardley who I think would have, you know, who, who would have definitely be, have been at more uh, top clubs and, and who would have, you know, been more, there would have been a lot more Cardis 10, 20 years ago. I think that you, you are going to start seeing more and more of these players phased out because frankly, um, as teams try to play with more possession, play with more, uh, yeah, play, play with more options in possession, You need to have all of your players, whether that's a goalkeeper, whether that's a striker, whether that's a midfielder, whether it's a defender, being comfortable with, you know, touching the ball, linking up, uh, making the right pass. That's something that that players just need to do. Um, So, yeah, in many ways, it's like, you know, it's it's like you you go and look at a car that you wanted to buy like 80 years like that by 20 years ago. And uh, realize that it just doesn't meet the same standards as today's cars, you know? And, and yeah, yeah so I,
0: but yes and no. Yeah. Okay? okay. Because here's it right. So we, we're seeing football positions change, right? Yeah. None more so than the fullback, right? So it used to be as a fullback, your job was to defend. That's it. Right. Now, if you can't get forward as a fullback and that's open to the attack, you are, like you say, becoming obsolete. Right? I mean, yeah. there are some players that are very good defenders that offer nothing going forward, and those gaps are obvious when you don't add yeah. that to your game. However, do we get a situation where we have players that are jack of all trades, master of no, where they've got a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but they're not expertise. They don't have... like I would argue that as the fullback positions have evolved to be wing backs. They're not as good defensively as what the predecessors were, whose job was just to defend. I mean, I, I trend Alexander Arnold is an exceptional young player going forward, but well, he has vulnerabilities in behind. Some of that's positional, of course, because of where they play. But there's to me no question about it that defensively, in terms of uh, you know, their ability to defend, um, has diminished. Also, when I look at goalkeepers, another position that's changed and and you know but The first thing I want a goalkeeper to be able to do is to do what a goalkeeper's responsibility is. That's keep the ball in the net. If he can spray passes and he can you know be a sweeper keeper and all that, that's great, right? But. If I've got to take something away from my goalkeeper, right to be a sweeper, I'm not sure I want that. And it's hard yeah. to get everything perfect. I mean, Edison when he came to Manchester City, yeah, was probably for a year or two the best goalkeeper in the Premier League. I would probably say that's Allison right now. <clears throat> um, mm-hmm. he is he he was notorious for being a sweeper keeper and all that there. But was Addison better than Peter Schmeigel? No way. Now modern people, young young kids watching this, not young kids, but young people watching this, will will disagree. But I want to say, haven't seen them both. No. Right? Would I pick Addison over Peter Schmeigel in my team? No, because Peter Schmeigel, I'm confident, will keep the ball out of the, the net more. Yes, he won't start attacks the same way. Although his distribution is exceptional. Um, Not as good with his feet as what you would get with some goalkeepers today, of course. But I still think my core skill set as a goalkeeper has to be based on shot stopping, coming for crosses, simple, quick distribution with your hands, yes, with your feet too. But I don't want to see my last line of defense playing as a sweeper. I don't want to see my last line of defense getting tricky on the ball and not spraying passes here, spraying passes there. I don't want to see it, and and so like, I understand it's a personal taste, but I think that sometimes when you're trying to get players to have to, to, to have the skill set to be able to play in a whole different way, you lose something in them. Um, you're probably going to disagree with it.
1: <laughs> no, look, I, I I agree. I think that um, the the biggest thing for a goalkeeper is still you know the ability to keep out goals. Yeah. Um, so you know, I and I think that there's a lot to that, okay. And look, if you talk to Manchester City fans, I think that more and more of them are, you know, they're, they're they they recognize Ederson's importance, um, but they've also grown frustrated by his inability to keep out shots, and and so they're not like they're not in a glass house with regards to his lack of ability in certain yeah. aspects. So. You know, and and we'll see if Stefan Ortega's potential arrival can, uh, from Armenia, Bielefeld can can challenge him for a starting spot. We'll see. But look, there's there's so much to being a goalkeeper, and I think that you ha- yeah, like like we were saying, you have to be a balanced goalkeeper. You have to be able to to fulfill certain aspects, and and I think that there are certain aspects where look, like going to the other side of Manchester, I think that David De Gea is one of the best shot stoppers. Mm-hmm um that i've ever seen okay but there are just so many flaws of m1 obviously possession uh and i think that that's something that you see that that is going to that is going to bring down a team's overall level because look i can't tell you how many how many games i've watched of city where they're going up against a high pressing team and just one pass from etherson it's not even doesn't even have to be a long pass going halfway across the uh, pitch, you know, sometimes it's just perfect accuracy and allowing City uh, to to completely burn and exploit the team's high press and break on the counter. You know, that's something that that uh, goalkeepers having, shall we say, a ball playing goalkeeper will provide that a, a player like David de Gea does not. Um, but my, so so that's that's one aspect. And and another thing is that, look, we need to we we need to realize that. Football is a team sport, and going back to what we were talking about with with center forwards, right? And now we were talking about this on Friday, right? Okay, yes, you talk, you we we measure center forwards for their their value in scoring, but football is not about uh, is, is not about having the most goals. It's having the best balance, right? Scoring the most goals while keeping out the fewest, and whereas I think that pressing. And, and keeping up that intense press, if you're a, if you're an attacking player, that's going to help your team uh, not just not just concede fewer goals, but also score more. I think that also having that ability to to play out of pressure, to make the right pass, and to you not know, you know not uh, kick the ball out for an opposing throw-in uh, or kick-in, we'll see in a few years. You know, I, I think that's definitely something that's going to allow your team uh, in in both aspects, right? Not just uh, going on the attack, but also not conceding possession in a dangerous area with, with a poor pass. So look, and, and going back to De Gea, I think that his flaws are not just in possession. I think that in terms of, uh, claiming high crosses, that's something he needs to work on. So we need to start judging goalkeepers. I think that, you know, going back to what we were talking about with, you know, highlight clips and how like players with, you know, who will do the fancy skills and, and dribbles and, Ah uh, flicks and and stepovers, they're they're going to be rewarded by that. I think similarly with goalkeepers, right? with these uh, with these great reactions and shot and and saves. and okay, fair enough. but there's so many other aspects to a goalkeeper's game besides shot stopping, you know, part of it is uh, claiming high crosses. Part of it is commanding your box. Part of it is communication. Part of it is coming off your line at the right time and forcing the uh, striker to make a uh, to make a tough decision. And, and part of it as well is, uh, is, is, is ability in possession. That's something that's been trending since the uh, institution of the back pass rule about 30 years ago. And that's going to make, you know, more and more goalkeepers, just like, just like we're seeing with, with center forwards, you know, adding new layers to the game. And, and so, yeah, personally, uh, I don't know if it's, if it's, if the two are mutually exclusive, you know, I think you can be a good shot stopper as well as a good passer on the ball. Yeah. Yes. I think that, I think that if, look, if I'm, if I'm a, if I'm looking for a goalkeeper for my team and I'm going and, and I have to look at, um, I have to look at, uh, you know, and I uh, choose between a goalkeeper with, you know, great, uh, you know, claiming crosses, great aerial ability, great, you know, uh, shot stopping and reflexes and uh, versus somebody who's not very good in those, but has good distribution, I'm going with the first one because the goalkeeper keeping attributes, absolutely. They are still more important, but with that being said, uh, as a goalkeeper, you need to have as many levels as possible as you have. And for me, that, that is why, uh, you know, right now I'd go with, I I'd say that, uh, Alisson and Thibaut Courtois are the two best goalkeepers in the world. Because for me, they are just the most complete. They have the most strengths and the fewest, uh, fewest noticeable areas of weakness.
0: Well, the, you mentioned two goalkeepers, uh, Alisson and Thibaut Courtois, both goalkeepers for two very exceptional teams that were in the European Cup final. <clears throat> so there's some things that need to be uh, pointed out here. Yeah. Of course, the more comprehensive skill set you have, the better. No question about that. And of course... You can't make it to the top level being a one-trick point. You have to have more than just one particular outstanding skill. Um in the hair slight defense, but I would say David De Gea's issues are more mental than anything else. If you look at David De Gea's record in big games, it's really poor. right? World Cup for Spain. Uh it even for uh, United, I, I it, there's a litany of errors. In, Derby games, Man City games, Liverpool games. Villarreal last season didn't see a single penalty in the, in the, in the Europa League final, um, missed his. Um, so to me, when I look at David that De Gea, that's a problem. I also think it's not completely analogous because when you're playing against Manchester United, when you're playing with Manchester United, they're, they're not a synchronized football team. So you don't get to see them open to pass the ball because there's no movement. So it's really easy to look bad in that United team. Whenever you're lifting your head and there's no movement in front of you, every player is marked, there's nothing, there's no tactical application about making space, United cannot play out from the back. Right, Give the ball to high Maguire. This is, of course, one of the reasons why they want Frankie Dion, because they want a player that can link defense from midfield and start those attacks in that second transition. That also will help De Gea. Right. You, you know, you, you, when you've got McTominay and Fred as your deep-land midfield players, neither of them are particularly technical on the ball, right? Um, <clears throat> so the other problem is a lot of the crosses shouldn't be happening in the first place, right? Because Liverpool aren't letting cross after cross after cross come in the box. Allison isn't dealing with the same crosses that David Day is dealing with. He's dealing with a better defence. You know, they don't have anyone near the level of a Virgil van Dijk. All right, So um, when you quite rightly say it, it's a team game, right? same thing with a striker. You judge a striker at the bottom of the table against one that's at the top. If a striker is scoring 15 goals for a team at the bottom of the table, that's worth 30 goals for a team at the top. Because the, the, the chances that he's getting are a lot fewer than the chances that a top-level striker is getting. Like Cristiano Ronaldo, to me, if he'd have played for Liverpool City last season, we'd be on 30-plus goals this year. No question about it, right? Just the ratio of chance conversion and all that, no question about it, right? Um... But when you, I mean, this is why it's not a, you know, a fair comparison. Uh, Liverpool got, you know, 20 penalties and Bournemouth got one. Well, yeah, Liverpool are spending the most high ratio of time in, their, in the opposition box than Bournemouth, are, so they should be getting more, right? So I think there's some variables in there that don't make it, you know, completely analogous. I'm not saying that David De Gea doesn't have weaknesses. He most certainly does. And if you ask any United fan um, coming for crosses and stuff like that is certainly an issue. But if you go back to David De Gea uh, after his second season, when he was playing in the Manchester United team that won the league, none of these criticisms were there, right? They were there when he first came. But whenever you know, he started playing in much weaker teams, these issues came back. Personally, I think he should have left. 2014, when he could have left, um, I think it would have revitalized him. Um, but you can't survive in England if you can't come for courses. You, you will, you'll be out of the team in two weeks. It uh, also speaks volumes for the quality of David, Dean Henderson that he couldn't dislodge David De Gea. David De Gea has got rid of Victor Valdez. He's got rid of lots of goalkeepers that came in and challenged them that weren't capable. So, um, to me, there is no complete goalkeeper. There isn't, I mean, with the exception of Messi and Ronaldo, maybe every player has a weakness that you can focus on and say, that's a problem, that needs to improve. Right, and in, in the top leagues, your weaknesses will get exposed, there's no question about it. So, to me, yeah, I think uh, David Deha hasn't been close to being the best goalkeeper in the world for a while, but he was for a couple of years, I have no doubt about that. Um, I agree, but but and and yes, look, you could argue that uh, he hasn't developed, but then, Zach, this goes back to a point that we started as we'll finish the show up here. About how many players make that last jump in their development? I mean, you, I mean, okay, I'll give for example, right? Or Ajax, take a look at these football clubs that have these exceptional young talents, right? Hakim Ziak, Van der Beek, all these players that you thought they were going to be exceptional. Test elected in orb, Frankie Dion, right? How many of them are making that jump into being a consistent world class player? So few of them do. And and so, I think um, what we have to understand also is that uh, reaching perfection is so rare and so difficult. I mean, Manuel Neuer was the best goalkeeper in the world for a couple of years. Now he's not, right? And it's such a hard thing to maintain because there are so many people competing for that claim. And I would agree. But also that Allison's the best goalkeeper probably in the world. But also, I think it helps. Like if fallison was playing for Manchester United, we'd be discussing weaknesses in this game that we're not discussing right now because they're not obvious. I mean, you'll get exposed at United in a way that you're not going to get exposed at Liverpool because there's enough in the rest of the team to make sure that doesn't happen. So anyway, um, <clears throat> mate, thanks as always for the show. Thanks to all of you folks for all your downloads, links, Twitch follows this show. As we've promised, um, we'll be... Coming to you every week, uh, there's going to be a lot of work done on this show and a couple of other shows over the course of the summer, so that uh, come start of August, we have a routine and uh, we're, we have a rhythm of uh, doing this show every week. It's going to be praise of lots of different guests. We've got Graham Hunter coming up, uh, which we're looking forward to doing. We have a couple of other guys that be coming on the show. If you have anyone that you'd like us to have on, let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Just drop uh, myself or Zach a tweet. Uh, You have our our Twitter address, and uh, we will start integrating questions into this show in the last segment. And uh, we're looking forward to a lot of exciting guests we have lined up for you. So uh, we will start rolling those out very soon. Zach, as always, mate, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, Phil. Absolutely, yeah, it's a pleasure. And, yeah, thank you to everyone for tuning in. Um, you know, Phil is a great co host, but above all, he's a great friend. Thank you. Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited. I, you know, I know there have been some bumps in the first few weeks, but honestly, this is something that's not just short term, this is long term that we're going to be doing over not just weeks, but months, and yeah. we've already had some great guests on. And I'm excited to have a lot more.
0: Yes, absolutely. So, folks, get in touch with us, and uh, we will uh, we will answer all your questions. Everything else, uh, this month's Encyclopedia on Football. Thanks as always, man. Take it easy, Zach, and uh, all the best, folks. Take it easy.